This morning's Old Testament reading comes from the book of the prophet Zechariah. It's uh, two short but important verses from the ninth chapter, verses 9 and 10. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The New Testament reading for this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke in the 19th chapter. It's beginning at the 29th verse and we'll continue it through the 40th verse. I'll add that one. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord. There it is written. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order, order your disciples to stop. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Today, Palm Sunday, we celebrate what has come to be referred to as the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The gospel account, according to Luke, has been building up to this moment. And here now, at last, it's finally happening. It seems as if Jesus is now at last ready to confront those corrupt religious leaders and the secular powers that have for too long exerted incompetent and illegitimate control over the Hebrews. Expectations are running high. As usual, however, Jesus does a pretty good job of not fulfilling the expectations of the people. In this account of that fateful day, we are told that he had two of his friends, his disciples, 
Go ahead of him and procure for him an appropriate ride. As we hear this account read, you may have noticed that it references one animal. You may recall that, although Luke's gospel reads almost identical to Mark's here, in the account of this event that we have in the gospel according to Matthew, there are two animals that are procured for Jesus. In John's gospel, Jesus gets his own ride. Some would say that right there, there's proof that the veracity of the New Testament is null and void. The word cannot be inerrant if it contradicts itself. So the whole lot of it is nullified. I think, though, that it is remarkable how the authors agree on the most important parts of the gospel story. The tales of what happened that day were repeated by the eyewitnesses for years and years and years. They were oral narratives that didn't get written down for at least a generation or two or three after the events took place. And yet when they did, they painted a comprehensive and unified masterpiece of the big picture. One of the details on that canvas was this procession into Jerusalem. In our Sunday school class, we were talking about the manner of conveyance that Jesus had for this momentous occasion. You can take your pick from any of the four gospel records that you like, but they all agree that he didn't come up in a stretch limo or a black SUV with tinted windows. He didn't even ride in the first century equivalent of a custom-made Pope mobile. Nope. Rather, he made his entrance on the pinto of his day. Or maybe one of those Shriner golf carts. The point that Jesus was making by this very intentional choice was in keeping with his identity and his mission and the prophecy that he was fulfilling from Zechariah. He was a very powerful king, and yet he was extremely humble. A very, very rare combination for any human leader. It was the religious leaders of his day, those who had gone off the rails and lost their way, those who were more interested in status and in power and in keeping up appearances, self-aggrandizement. Those were the ones who called for the crowds to quiet down. After all, why hadn't they been cheering this loudly for Pilate? When he had made his triumphal entry across town that same day, as he took up his residence from his coastal retreat in Caesarea Philippi, now to oversee the security detail of legionnaires that were stationed there in Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Within the past month, you may recall, the president of Ukraine addressed our Congress by secure video link. His country had been invaded, his capital was under barrage and bombardment. Teams of hitmen were roaming about with orders to assassinate him, and yet he found time and space to communicate an urgent message to the legislature of 
that which had once been described as the land of the free and the home of the brave. And in the midst of the tension of that moment, the urgency of the appeal, one wealthy U.S. stockbroker was fixated on his appearance. Not the fact that he was haggard, having been at his post commanding his troops and rallying his people in a desperate battle for survival, going without sleep for who knows how long, hours, days at a time, while the weight of a nation of 44 million souls was hanging in the balance. No, not that of a former TV personality who didn't spend enough time with a makeup artist before appearing on screen, but that would have been just as ludicrous. No, this pundit took to social media to make a negative remark about the besieged foreign leader's fashion sense. Now, come to think of it, it sounds a bit like something a Pharisee might well have remarked about Jesus. Your followers look to you as a leader, and yet you can't even lead them in a nice-looking, coordinated dress, jacket, and trousers? Come on. There's a relatively new song that's been getting a fair bit of airplay on the station I listen to. One of the lines in it is, I know the one with the power is never the one that is shouting. As he is riding his humble mount into the great citadel of Jerusalem, the text from the gospel according to Luke describes for us how the multitude of Jesus' disciples were crying out, praising not themselves and their cause, not even praising the leader of their group who was at the head of this procession, but praising God joyfully. They were giving thanks while using the words of the psalmist, and the Pharisees were annoyed. I would wager they were a bit, or perhaps more than just a bit, jealous of all the commotion that he was stirring up. I've heard and I've read reports that describe the, the training, the preparation, and the deployment of Russian combat troops involved in the attack on Ukraine. Many of the conscripts were under the impression that the townspeople along the invasion routes would come out to greet them as conquering heroes, as liberators who were freeing them from the oppression of their own government in scenes that would have been reminiscent of those which played out when Soviet troops pushed back the Nazi armies from their lands 75 years or so ago. But that turned out to be a fictional narrative concocted by the Russian propagandists who were trying to justify an unjustifiable military adventure. The reality of what the Russians encountered was a people who disdained, hated even the invaders, and who resisted them at every intersection and in every block along the way. It may well have been that the Pharisees were stung by the muted reception given to their Herodian political backers and the foreign military machine that propped them up in power over the Hebrews. Whether that was fully the case or not, they make their displeasure known to Jesus as some of them asked him to quiet 
these disciples of his to keep them from quoting scripture from making a scene. But Jesus' response was that if all the people were muted, that would not stop the proclamation. The word of God is powerful after all. It is powerful enough to overcome all attempts to silence it. Then and now. That's why it has been and it continues to be a thorn in the side of all those persons, principalities, and powers whose agenda runs counter to it. And it doesn't force its way into battle. Jesus is the very word of God sent in the flesh for the benefit of humanity. He embodied truth, and he did it from the very beginning of his time here with us with humility. I was re-reminded of this important truth once again this week while I was preparing this sermon. And that's why we will shortly be singing a Christmas carol in Lent. The very start of Holy Week, we are beckoning back to the Nativity because it is a reminder of the way that the ministry of the Messiah began. In deep, unexpected humility. And that's precisely the way that his entire mission is unfolding. In works of power, yes. With signs and with wonders, yes. But with profound humility. Never does Jesus perform a miracle for personal gain. And the closest he ever comes is that favor he does for his mom in the gospel according to John. He is forever preaching and teaching and healing in order to introduce people to the Father, not to benefit the Son. The great temptations in the desert that we read about every year at the start of this season of Lent are perhaps the clearest examples of the servant heart that beats within him, exemplifying the humility of this perfect Savior. And now as we're approaching the conclusion of this season of Lent, later this week we'll, we'll read of his arrest, his condemnation, and his crucifixion. And throughout that ordeal, Jesus continues to show great humility. As the Apostle Paul would describe this uniquely astonishing character of Jesus to the Philippians long after, when he wrote them that though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, yea, even death upon a cross. This is the rare leadership trait we see consistently on display throughout the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We see it at his birth. We see it in his ministry. We see it in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We see it in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It wasn't necessarily 
What the world wanted to see in him, it wasn't necessarily what his disciples wanted to see in him. It isn't necessarily what we want to see in him. But it was exactly what he knew was demanded of him by the Father. As his followers, then, I would submit that we are called to be imitators of Christ, to exercise whatever power and authority are granted us by God in a humble fashion and for his glory alone, to eschew self-promotion, the work of keeping up appearances and trying to please anyone other than our Creator. To let others speak of us more than we speak of ourselves. To not be the ones shouting. Unless it's about the power and the glory of God. These are the lessons that I take away from the enduring legacy of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. May they linger in us far longer than the leafy branches that remind us of this holy day. And for that, we may truly say thanks be to God and amen.